Welcome to Coming Along Nicely. We're two brothers, Rich and Tim, who recently went back to school. Every week, we're discussing one thing we're learning in our classes, and we want to invite you to come along with us. Picking things apart based on the thing itself. You want to pull people in, but in the slightest pain, makes you want to push people away. All short is that there's no truth you can access with this philosophy. A lot of us can be selfish because we've had to take care of ourselves. That doesn't mean that we have a personality disorder. All right, so this week in my readings, um, we covered a lot, a lot, honestly. Um, I The three chunks of disorders I was looking at was like neurocognitive disorders. So like dementia, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's. Um, then I was looking at a favorite from what I could tell, looking at, you know, feedback I've gotten uh, from my last semester, which is the personality disorders like narcissistic personality disorder, dependent personality disorder, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And then we also went over the paraphilic disorders, which we're not going to talk about um, because that – I don't want to talk about it. (laughs) But what were you saying, Tim? So the the personality disorders are a favorite of who? Oh, I just heard from some listeners um, when we went over personality disorders. Gotcha. I think I had a little bit. I touched it last class. I had some people who reached out and were like, hey, I could listen to you talk about those like all the time. And I <laughs> completely understand why. I think even just from like YouTubing, because I was having trouble determining between I was having trouble wrapping my mind around what borderline personality disorder was. I think it's kind of a little confusing mm-hmm. it, or it was to me. Um so just by YouTubing it, man, there is a ton of stuff on YouTube and just the internet explaining personality disorders and how you might know someone and how you might have one. Um, so I thought it'd be safe once again to give the old Rich Nisley disclaimer when it comes to stuff like this. Um, the personality disorders, all of them, um, I think it's real easy to see part of yourself and part of other people in these personality disorders. Um, And that can bring a lot of, I don't want to say closure. Closure is not the right word. It can bring almost relief. Like it's almost sometimes there's, there might be a sense of relief. Uh, Maybe you have someone in your life who's selfish and there might be relief that comes from thinking maybe they just have a narcissistic personality disorder or maybe even for yourself. If you feel like you're uber dependent on other people and that's like a a thing you look at and think, may may I want to get better at that? Oh, well, maybe I just have a dependent personality disorder Um, there. I think there's a sense of relief that comes from knowing. Um. Like when you when you can finally feel like you can put your finger on something, that's like an aha moment. Um, but for all of these personality disorders, like the chance of people having them um, are actually pretty low. Like I think the general population, like if you take everyone in just America, it'd probably be around like 10 percent of people who have one of the personality disorders, like all of them combined. Um, so you, you might not know anybody and even though it might bring relief to hear 
and think like, oh, they have this. Um, it's an even greater relief not to have a personality disorder. Um, now, all that being said, I love talking about them. They're so interesting. And I think because you can find yourself in all the personality disorders, or at least I could, um, it is like a good, like, it scratches the surface of like self-work kind of where you're like, oh, I can get better if I improve this and improve that. Um, so I love I love talking about them. It's it's kind of like the DSM fives version of like the like the Myers Briggs or stuff like that. We were like, ooh, I kind of feel like this one's me a little bit. In fact, several of my counseling friends, when they heard I was going through this section, were like, oh yeah, when we go through this section, everybody goes through the section and places themselves somewhere. Like everybody who reads this section self-diagnoses themselves. Um me with my personality, I self-diagnose myself with all of them because um, I can see myself in all of them, uh, which is great. But yeah, the so the personality disorders are broken up into three clusters. So there's cluster A, cluster B, and cluster C. Um, now, without having to flip through, I believe cluster A... Oh, man, I'm just shooting from the rip right now. Um, but cluster A is the personality disorders that make someone appear a little odd or eccentric. So we're talking like schizoid, uh, paranoid, um, schizotopal. Uh, then there's cluster B, which is like the more antisocial. Um, they might seem more dramatic or emotional or erratic. And that is your antisocial personality disorder, your narcissistic, your uh, histrionic. Um, and then finally, cluster C is kind of the more shy or anxious or fearful of the of the personality disorders. Uh, that's where you have your avoidant or your dependent or your anxious and fearful. Um, so that's kind of like the overall organization of the personality disorders. So um, I'll take a quick break. Yeah. Say yeah, go ahead. again, what, what are some of the ones that fall within cluster a? So cluster a is your odd and eccentric. Like that's the grouping. So that's like the schizoid personality disorder. Uh, that is your schizotopal. So those are almost like borderline schizoid or schizo schizophrenia almost. Um, so it's kind of, and then the other one that goes with that, go ahead. Well, so I was just trying to kind of categorize them in my head. So like cluster a and cluster B are both maybe like very additive where they are, they're like creating extra, uh, gosh, I don't know, like behaviors in a person is what, okay. So this is what it sounds like to me is that those first two clusters okay. are like creating extra behaviors. And then maybe cluster B is the more negative of the two. And then cluster C to me kind of sounds more like it is like you said, it's like shy and removal. So it's kind of like more pulling back instead of adding more. Am I all right on that? Mm. No, I think I think you're really close. If I can just clarify 
I think a little bit because um, there is kind of like a lot of this that has to do with attachment style mm. and how you relate to yourself and to other people. Um, so a lot of cluster A, which, which is the odd and eccentric, uh, I think part of cluster A has to do more with biology more than the other ones because um, you've got like you're kind of like border, borderline schizophrenia almost. You've got schizophrenic tendencies. Um, so there's like – let me do a quick refresher. So while you're looking at that, like potentially cluster A, like if if you were sitting alone in a room, you would have these conditions, whereas B – has more to do with your relationships to other people and same thing with C to some extent. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Cause the cluster a, so schizoid personality disorder is like a lack of interest in having relationships with other people mm. or having any close contact with other people. Um, it can often, you know, be hard to differentiate between schizoid personality disorder and autism spe- uh, spectrum disorder. Um, you have to kind of look for more of the clarifiers of like autism spectrum disorder in order to like rule out schizoid, I guess. Uh, schizotopal, that's more of your, they have like this magical way of thinking. They might think that they could like read people's minds um, or have like a sort of sixth sense or unusual perception. And then um, paranoid obviously is once again closer to maybe like bipolar or schizophrenia in like you have these like paranoid delusions. Um, But obviously it's not as extreme um, or else it would be those, you know, those disorders themselves. So cluster a, sorry, listeners, if you can hear my pages flipping, Um, cluster a, it is not necessary. Well, no, I don't even know if I could say cluster a doesn't have to deal with other people. Because schizoid is all about not wanting, like, not caring to have any sort of relationships with other people. Um, And paranoid is kind of your response. You having, like, a paranoid response to other people having, like, a negative outlook towards you. Um, So I kind of feel like that just the best way to classify them is, like, odd and eccentric behavior for A. Um, B is your um oh i kind of forget what i said you said i know what's in there it's like your hint for b it's yeah it's kind of like your anti your anti-social um i don't even want to say necessarily aggressive because that that's not it either that's just it for some of them um and cluster c is like you're shy or you're anxious um cluster b dramatic emotional erratic um Dramatic, emotional, erratic, you know, antisocial disorder, uh, borderline personality disorder, like you're good one second, you're bad the next, you know, hits, uh, hysterensic, which is kind of like, um, it's closely tied to narcissistic, but you're kind of like overly, this is such a summarization of it. Um, please listeners don't take this and start applying this to people. Uh, hystrinsic disorder is kind of like, you're overly flirtatious. You might like always see yourself as trying to perform and trying to act and play this like character. 
uh, like you're, there's this emotionality with it. So people might think you're overly emotional, um, but you just kind of see that as a way of being able to interact with other people. I, I guess one thing I should say that I think will clarify all the personality disorders is all of these disorders, a lot of them come in late adulthood and the role of these personality disorders, why these personality disorders develop is because it's like a survival technique. I know I go to that all the time and I might be wrong, but in my, in my, in my opinion, after looking at the DSM, I think a lot of these are more nurture than nature. If that makes sense mm -hmm. or it's not biology. It's something that these people kind of learn at least for cluster B and C. I would even say for maybe paranoid as well. Um, these are things that people learn as they go about life and develop these things as a way of trying to get what they want and survive out of life, which is kind of like, you know, what we're all doing. Um, borderline personality disorder, this like push and pull comes from this really unsteady understanding of self and value of self. So you want to pull people in, but then the slightest pain makes you want to push people away. Um, does that avoidant personality disorder? Go ahead. So does, does what you're saying connect it all to, cause you said something about attachment types. Is that related? Like using these as survival techniques? Is that is that impacted by like attachments you develop? How does that work? Man, that's a really good question. So, so here's the thing. A lot of my classes have been talking about attachment types and your attachment types and how you develop them at a young age. And I can't recall them. I don't know if just the textbooks I've been reading haven't covered them really strongly. I can't find them. I know a couple of them. There's like an avoid. There's like a. Uh, avoidant attachment type. There is a healthy attachment type. And a lot of these develop like at a young age. And I do think they're influenced by it. Um, what I, more, what I meant when I said attachment is it's kind of how you form attachments with other people. And I think in that young adult to like 20 in that 20 to thirties range, um, a lot of the stuff that happens in that transition to adulthood, because a lot of these disorders, that's their onset age, um, is like the 20s to 30s range. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of what happens in that range as the person tries to swing into adulthood yeah. and discover how to stand on their own, I think a lot of that determines if they develop one of these personality types. Now, I think there is a biological predisposition to them as well. Um, but I don't think it's just, well, if you have this biological predisposition, it's just an on switch. I think it's, you know, I think the person who has paranoid personality disorder probably experienced, you know, in their perception, some type of deep pain and is very afraid of that happening again. So they form this, protective cycle in their mind and then that kind of just spirals you know out of control um it could be maybe potentially similar for borderline but there's more it's more connected to like their personality maybe the same thing for dependent dependent personality disorder you might think that you're not capable of doing anything on your own maybe because you've always had help or maybe just because you've had some failures in your life and you think that 
It's now hard to rely on others. So suddenly you're like second guessing every decision you make unless you have someone there to confirm it for you. So that that's my that makes opinion of how these things develop. Yeah. Well, that the timeline makes a lot of sense to me in terms of you saying that a lot of these develop in like late 20s because there's kind of the did you say late 20s or 20s and 30s? I think some of them develop between the 20s and 30s. But that being said, too, some of these also develop in like the middle school range. So I think as it could develop as early as 12 to 13 or as late as like mid 20s. Yeah. Which there's a lot of mental development happening in that range. It's a big scale for stuff like that to happen. Yeah. And what I was going to say is when you are like, so kind of stereotypically like 18, you kind of get pushed out of the nest, graduate high school, maybe move out, go to college, all those sorts of things. But there's still a lot of sort of given order to you. Like if you go to college, you're still being told when to show up for class, all these sorts of things. You're also kind of just learning like life skills at that point. Like you have to pay Mm -hmm. the bills on time or you get like those things cut off. You have to, uh, you know, manage, like take care of your car, like get oil changes, all these sorts of things that are kind of just like tasks. But as you get more into like your twenties and like in your late twenties, you're kind of more figuring out like you've learned how to be an adult in that sense of like adult responsibilities. But once you learn that, I, I'm just going off the top of my head. Right. But you kind of have to like you, you are figuring out your place in the world. And so it's really funny that mm-hmm. you connect that to middle school too, that that's a place that can develop and it can also develop in, mid 20s or 20s into 30s because those to me are both time frames where people are not necessarily learning like book knowledge but they're kind of to use your word like uh is it individuating like they're becoming their own individuals in different ways at those two stages yeah what's the word individualization yes individuate i I didn't know i didn't know how to use it yeah in, in that form No, but yeah, and I've always thought, too, that college and uh, sorry, my chair is scooting really far away. I've always thought that college and middle school were kind of the two times that happened the most. Um, wait, wait, wait. Like elementary school. That's like super poetic. The two times that happened the most. I'm writing that down. There you go. Using a song. Um, <laughs> um, but. So. This is a personal opinion. I haven't read this in the book just from, you know, doing junior high ministry for like 10 years and having most of my volunteers be college students. This is kind of what I've seen Um, and also helping you a little bit with like just working with kids ministry. I think that developmentally, middle school and college are really similar and elementary and high school are really similar. That makes a lot of sense. Um, When you've got... What was that? I said that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Now, in elementary school, these kids have this, like, invulnerability, you know, complex. 
they feel that they are almost like unstoppable and the best at everything. Um, they develop, they then move into middle school and they start to begin to realize they're not the best at everything that they specialize. There's things they're good at. There's things they're bad at. They are different than other kids around them. You know, whereas an elementary school kid would say, well, I'm the, I'm the best at soccer. I'm the best soccer player ever. And so is my best friend, Billy. Um, that same kid, you know, turns into a middle school student and they might realize Billy is way better at soccer than me, but Jane is way better than both of us combined, but that's okay because I'm good at this. Um, then high school happens. And I think there's that re cementing of like, I'm really good at these things. I'm going to be really good at these things. I'm the best at these things. There's that like, you know, high school confidence that comes back. And then that shakes again in college where they start to question, like you had said earlier, who they are in comparison to adulthood. You know, it's no longer who are they in comparison to their peers. Um, it's who are they in comparison to the rest of the world. Um, so there's that reformation there. And that that's why I think like that middle school college range is where we can see these, you know, personality disorders begin to develop. And I, I want to say too, there are some that can start as early as childhood. Mm -hmm. I would imagine that most of like the schizoid and schizotopal, those are maybe childhood because they might be more influenced by biology. I think avoidant, if I'm remembering correctly, avoidant personality disorder can also, you know, first be detected as shyness in uh in like infancy or as a child. Um, however, there's other disorders that say like, hey, it's really risky to try to diagnose this personality type on a child. So they're kind of all over the place. But I think it's safe to say that a large, like a large portion of them do develop in that middle school or college range where that identity formation is happening the most and where the concept of self is at its most vulnerable. Yeah. Yeah. That is interesting. Cause I think a lot of just like going through my mind, a lot of times when we talk about these, these disorders, you're talking about them either as like mostly biologically informed, or we've talked a lot of about ones that are just like, uh, you know, they, they just appear in childhood. So like, in other words, they're like mostly mm -hmm. there and you might figure it out when they're a kid, you might figure it out when they're a little older, but like it's there. These ones, I think this is the first time we're talking about them where they not just emerge later in life, but like actually are formed at a later, later stage in life. That's kind of interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's why I think it's also so easy for us to find ourselves in them because I think a lot of us have, you know, some experience of these disorders present in our lives. Um, like, I think a lot of us can be selfish because we've had to learn to take care of ourselves because someone let us down. Now, that doesn't mean that we have like a narcissistic personality disorder, but it does mean that, you know, we have that experience. 
and we can kind of relate and maybe see ourselves in it uh, for like the histrionic personality disorder where you're kind of like being a little dramatic and flirtatious and using that to like your advantage. I mean, any person who's ever worked as a waiter or waitress or in sales, like you learn to kind of like have that kind of like flirty personality because that's part of sales. Like that doesn't mean you have this disorder though. Everyone's not wanted to be near certain people, but that doesn't mean you have avoidant personality. I think as always, the big thing to consider is like the major distress these disorders cause and the feeling of like for most of these, for all these disorders, these doing these actions are not a choice. Like you're not choosing to be a little selfish. You're not choosing to be a little avoidant. You're not choosing to be like, hot and cold and like the borderline personality disorder. Like it's it at this point, it's an automatic rhythm in your life. And it's very hard to turn it off. Um, so I think that's the, the differentiating fact, the different, I can't say that word. That's the factor that may, that, that really makes or breaks whether you have this or not is the fact that you can't, you can't stop it without like major help. Yeah. Yeah. You have made me think about why people are so quick to self-diagnose. And that that's also kind of going back to what you were saying at the beginning. I wonder if there's also an element of it, in addition to what you said, that it kind of like taking this on as a label almost gives you, I'm not really saying it the right way, but like it, it gives you permission to talk about it because mm -hmm. it'd be really weird if you were just, you know, sitting at coffee with your friends and you're like, you know what? I'm really selfish. Or even if you were like speaking about it removed, it would be weird to be sitting at coffee with your friends and talk about narcissism. But by, by like placing yourself in it, you almost give yourself an opportunity to bring it up like like i have a i have an ability to talk about this because i think i have it you know there's certain things mm. where they're sensitive subjects so if if it's not you you kind of don't really talk about it or you don't have the same authority to speak on it i so i wonder if like just one part of the pie one piece of the pie is also that it's just kind of easier to say like, Hey, I think I might have this than to bring it up, like try to bring it up objectively or by a different route. I don't know. Hmm. No, that's a, no, that's a good point. I'm like remembering back to when you were talking, I think it was about like CS Lewis's criticism of like something of like literary and analysis, I think it was where like, you know, if you remove the ability to say that a mountain is, I think your example was the mountain is a spiritual experience. Like looking at a mountain is a spiritual experience. If you, if you begin to diminish that, like effect that these things can have on us and like take it down to like, it's nitty gritty molecular level. Mm hmm. Like you lose this like system of value. Maybe these things aren't as close related, but I, I can see a lot with 
with these like personality disorders. Um, our culture currently, you know, it doesn't have like this like firm understanding of like values and and morals. We're in the stage of like reinventing, I think, kind of what those things are. Um, so it's kind of like everyone can kind of do what matters most to them, which has like brought a lot of good. Like there's some like there's some things that were cemented maybe into our culture that weren't necessarily great. Um, there's other things that might have been good to hold on to. But right now it's kind of like, hey, whatever matters most to you personally, that's what matters. So it is hard to talk about things like narcissism because is narcissism bad? Like maybe it's really helping that individual, you know, maybe you do have to take care of, you have to look out for number one. So it's, it's hard to talk about those things because like, it's hard to label them wrong or right. But I think that this gives us a system and a way of talking about these things. Whereas before we would have said, don't be a narcissist. It's bad. Now, like we, we can't necessarily say that, or maybe it's not as easy to say like, Hey, you're being selfish, but we can now say like, Hey, you just have a narcissistic personality disorder. And that's not, like, it's not a moral thing. If you bring it up through this lens, yes, it's more of just a thing that you have. Yeah. It's, if that makes sense. I think what I hear you saying, there's kind of two levels or two layers. There's the layer of morality of the thing and there's also the layer of of just the concrete existence of it or mm -hmm. you know like narcissism schizophrenia so on and so forth bipolar these are things that exist in a textbook and so if i'm using those terms there's a bit more certainty to the fact that they exist whereas if i just don't have a better way to say Hey man, I think that you're being a little self-absorbed. Like, like even when I was just saying that hypothetically, I kind of softened my tone. I kind of, hey man, maybe, kinda, I mm -hmm. don't know. It, it gets a little softer because you have to, like at that point, if you're confronting somebody about something, you are making a statement based on your own opinion, your own authority. And maybe we just don't feel comfortable doing that compared to like i said pulling out words that are in a textbook that that doctors and smart people say these things are real and they say that you know it's kind of like an appeal to authority possibly mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it's i think it's an appeal to authority but it's also a It's also like an escape for the person who is saying it. So like when. You, yeah. OK. Going back to your example of like, hey, man, I, I think you're being like a little selfish and how you like you lowered your voice. You you made everything a little bit softer. The reason we do that is because we don't want to seem as harsh. You know, we don't want to hurt that person. We don't want that person to think of us in a harsher way. We want to maintain the relationship. Being able to say. And you, you're kind of giving someone an out almost. Hey, I think you're being selfish, but I also think it's not your fault. Mm. Um, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like, hey, hey, I think you're a narcissist, which, you know, saying that, 
it's on you. But hey, I think you're a narcissist and I think it's because you have a narcissistic personality disorder that removes the feeling of of like it's all your fault, you know, um, which I also don't think I'm not saying these things is like, hey, here's a here's a trick you should all apply to your lives. Um, <laughs> I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think having like close relationships that can like share those things with you is important. Um, and I think it might also diminish the fact that there are people who have these personality disorders. Um, but I, I also think it's, you know, like I had said earlier, the reason why counselors can read through this section of the DSM and place ourselves in these things is because we can see ourselves in a lot of these personality disorders and they can be even useful for us to look at and say, Hey, how can I remove these more negative traits these traits that are holding me back from my life, um, which I think is a helpful tool for, you know, for anybody to be able to look at. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I can, unless you have more to say, I can get into mine and it may, this may be somewhat no, go related, not immediately, but oh, it, cool. it might, it might get there. So I have been for, for the independent study I'm doing. I have talked a little bit about looking at different theories, different philosophies that I think are at play in our culture, the things that are potentially the reason for cynicism and and ultimately what my project is about, just refreshing anybody, is about like character and why are we cynical about having character it's kind of why I say that it might be related to what we were just talking about. Like, why are we like conversations about morality and things that are right and wrong, or even just our own opinions about things. And so anyway, this past week or two, I dug a little bit closer into, okay, I'm going to say his name wrong. Uh, Jacques Derrida, who is, the father of deconstruction and i'll give my little like i'll just warn everybody right now i always mess up pronouncing his name he's french i don't know if that makes it derrida or if that that makes him derrida i don't think derrida is correct but a lot of like videos and stuff i've watched pronounce it that way so i'm all confused if you also derrida sounds like something you could shout out in like a song Derrida, like you know, the drops about to happen, and you're like Derrida, oh, and he just comes in spitting bars, <laughs> like a uh, yeah, like in a. Uh, actually, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna even get into more examples, but you know, you're actually kind of right. Um, <laughs> that's like his yeah tag, producer tag. So yeah, anyway, he is he's the father of deconstruction. The reason why I will okay, so so I'm gonna ask you what what you're like idea of what deconstruction is in a second. The reason why I'm like wanting to look at him is because kind of something with my personality, it just annoys me when people talk like so confidently about stuff that they have no idea what it is. Like uh, I'm not, that's why you love me being your brother. <laughs> Cause I do that all the time. Well, no. So I'm, <laughs> 
I very much believe like people are people. I'm not trying. I don't think you have to be an expert to speak on things. I think people should be allowed to have opinions, say this is good. This is bad. I love this. That sucks. I don't have a problem with that. What I'm talking about is like, so there are, especially in like the Christian world, there are people who have like blogs and YouTube channels about deconstruction who I would just bet anything they they couldn't actually define the word for you. Like it kind of became a buzzword and they kind of just like pulled it out of the ether and are building a personality on either being for it or against it, but they don't even know the background of it. And again, like words change, they evolve over time. I don't even think you have to have like an academic understanding of it. But anyway, I was just in, in this project that I'm doing. I'm like, I'm not going to be the guy who has no idea what I'm talking about. Uh, and so, yeah, that's sort of my motivation. But like I said, I want to ask you as I get into it, like, what is your understanding of what, what does that word mean? What is deconstruction? Okay. Deconstruction. Um, Where do you think like used? Yeah. Literal first, literal first level, uh, like to take something apart, you know, piece by piece. Mm -hmm. Um, Think of like deconstructing like a Lego fort. So when we're talking about deconstructions, it's taking things apart. Um, I think in our current cultural understanding of the word, and maybe even like you were saying from a literary sense, it's taking a taking your source material, whether that let's say you're taking apart a book and you're taking it apart piece by piece to f- more fully understand like the whole and attach values to it that way. So you're taking apart Mary Shelley's Frankenstein and you're saying like, okay, like let's look at her as a writer and her life and the pieces in that and how that affects the value of this book. Let's look at the time period and take that apart and and see how that affects our interpretation of the book. Let's take apart the characters and see how that affects the understanding of the book. Um, and then you could also do that to, you know, to moral systems as well. Like, I think like you were saying from the Christianity perspective, it's a lot of people, Hey, well, here's our, the history of the church and let's take that apart piece by piece and see, you know, how that affects the whole in general, or let's take apart this thing, or let's take apart, you know, let's, let's look at the biblical text and, you know, think through their culture and the writers and all these things and take those apart and see how it affects, um, does that how am I doing? How am I yeah, doing? That's what I got. Yeah, definitely. Uh kind of going through it like one at a time. So yeah, the the first thing you said, uh just literally taking something apart, uh piece by piece, evaluating it, uh with with respect to evaluating like a piece of literature. So this is this is like a perfect way to understand it you kind of gave the example of Frankenstein and we will, we'll do criticism of Frankenstein based on the time period, based on the author, based on, uh, you know, what if we compare Frankenstein to some other work, those sorts of things. So that is all literary criticism where, where deconstruction becomes 
unique and and where it's a little bit different than what you said is deconstruction is taking things apart based on the thing itself so so specifically Hmm. with your example of frankenstein you actually wouldn't compare it to the time period to deconstruct it or you wouldn't compare it to anything else those are things that that we do with literature but when we're specifically talking about deconstruction it's taking a thing itself and sort of using its own words against it sort of a val- finding the i guess the contradictions within it and mm. uh derrida's like big one liner that a lot of people know with reference to deconstruction is there's no outside text. So that's sort of what deconstruction is, is like taking, taking one text, evaluating it by its own terms. That's, that's why it is, you know, deconstruction because it's constructed its own way, but you can, you can pull it apart by looking at it, but it's not, it's specifically not by comparing it to other things or appealing to other or other sources of, of truth or information. Does that make sense? So essentially it's seeing if a text can stand on its own. Yes. I'm kind of following you. I don't even know if I'm hitting it there though. So I'll give, cause you talked about like checking the text against itself. Yeah, go ahead. Well, a lot of uh, his motivation, it seems like, was very uh it ha- it had a lot to do with like institutional power and he was living when when he was developing a lot of his philosophy he gosh i forget which war it was but like there was a war going on and you know back then there was no there was no internet there was less spread of information if you're just imagining like kind of his place and time so the institutions had still a lot more power than they do today, which even, you know, there are a lot mm-hmm. of powerful institutions today. But like I said, it, it was even just a different time pre-internet, pre a lot of things. And I think there was a, a particular war that was kind of looming. And so. So a lot of the. I don't know if I would say the motivation, but kind of the setting that this philosophy was coming out of had to do with, yeah, I mean, if if you're going to, if you're going to speak truth to power, can you just walk up to, can you walk up to, you know, a government and say, I think you're wrong? Can you walk up to a government and say, you know, appeal to like, uh, religion, can you say like, hey, what you're doing is wrong because God said so? Well, maybe you can do those things. But what deconstruction is, is walking up to like a government in this example and saying, hey, even this own thing that you're saying, you're not living up to by your own standards, you know? Mm-hmm. Like kind of the thing where we would, okay. For people who can remember this in like maybe a history class or for Christians out there, is this what Martin Luther did 
with his like 95 thesis is that an example of deconstruction that might be that might be a very good example i think what i would need to know because i you know i don't have all 95 memorized or anything um is is martin luther saying hey you guys are wrong and here are here's my scriptural backing that you guys are wrong or is he saying hey you guys say x and you don't even live up to x that would kind of be a distinguishing a distinguishing idea you know so hmm so deconstructionism is like you say a b and c matters but you're not doing a b and c yeah that that is like definitely one part of it i'm not going to say that that's the whole thing okay. but it is like deconstructing a it's deconstructing a text using its own its own terms and its own ideas so so using another religious example like a lot of people would probably think as think of deconstruction as being like very uh you know anti religion or anti god or whatever but there is one school of thought that what Jesus did to the Pharisees was he was deconstructing them. Cause if, if you're familiar mm -hmm. with scripture, a lot of what Jesus said to the Pharisees who were kind of like the religious uh, influencers of the day, he, he would say to them, Oh my gosh, I hate the mental image. I hate the mental image. You just conjured my mind. <laughs> I'm sorry, but it's kind of, it's kind of true. Pharisees as religious influencers, all these pharisaical thirst traps with their long beards and their robes just on TikTok. I mean, it's kind of right though, because the Pharisees weren't necessarily like the elite in society. That was more of, I think, the Sadducees, but the Pharisees were just like within their faith. These people had a lot of clout uh, to, yeah, make it even worse. So, oh my gosh, I hate this more. Hey, listeners, if any of you listeners are good at art, good at drawing, if you could do me a favor and draw what comes to mind when you think of a Pharisee as a religious TikTok influencer and just send that to us. <laughs> Please do. Um, that'd be awesome. <laughs> but a lot of what Jesus did, if you read through the Gospels, is he he would turn these people's words against them. He would say, hey, gosh, I'm I'm struggling for a great example right now. But he would say I'm thinking of like the parable or the Sermon on the Mount. Or even like. um, The parable of like if someone asks for your cloak. You know, give them your tunic or. Well, I know I'm I'm thinking of phrases where Jesus was like you heard it said this, but yeah, that I think even better examples though would be where he is specifically speaking to two people. Cuz those examples you listed, he's kind of just like, oh, so like you um okay, something of like you Pharisees, you scrub the pot clean, but you know, I think it's where Jesus is talking about, like, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. So he's like, you, you clean the outside of the pot, not you... the inside. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So exactly. So the message there is, hey, you guys give all these teachings and 
they're all about external you know you guys are saying you can be a good person if you do a b and c but all that you're teaching people to do is to look good externally and what you really need to do is to be good internally so that is like mm. a turn of these people's ideas kind of against them um i just had another one in my head and i i lost it but but it goes to show that like deconstruction is not really a uh you know we think of it as almost like its own form of like religion weirdly these days like i'm a christian i'm a baptist i'm a catholic i'm atheist i'm, I'm deconstructed yeah and it's like that's not really it's more of a methodology that you can apply it's a tool that you can apply to ideas to evaluate them but in in the original sense of the word yeah it wasn't a belief system it was the opposite it was a lens that you would use to evaluate a belief system if that makes any sense and no oh, yeah i think that you know i don't know how much we'll get into with the with the time like i'm i'm kind of just scratching the surface of what it is but Weirdly, I guess here's where I'll take it, is there are a lot of things that he says that make a lot of sense. Like, I think people would maybe be surprised to know if if you do have, you know, some weird notion of what deconstruction is. Like, I actually think a lot of what he says and what he teaches is, like, really beautiful, but also... Other stuff that he says, like, I'm very hot and cold on him. And the reason being is that. That there is some there, there's a lot of of validity to when people think that deconstruction is essentially like nihilism, like mm -hmm. Derrida was accused of being a nihilist a lot. And, you know, I guess I'm saying that people might not understand what deconstruction is. I don't think they are fair in that, but I do think it is a, a fair, uh, a, a totally fair accusation to say that it leads to nothing but, well, well, it as a method leads to nothing because if deconstruction is, is pulling things apart in a self-contained way based on their own terms, like there is no there it's not a tool that builds anything it is a tool that tears things apart and i think you were saying this earlier like like certain things need to be torn apart so it's good when you use you know it's good when you use a chainsaw on a tree that needs to be cut down it's not good when you use a chainsaw on your car tires you know and so that's sort of the problem with taking a tool or a lens or however you want to however you want to term it and making it making it a belief system like i was saying making it an identity is it really doesn't mm -hmm. doesn't lead to anything and and i think that he lays out really good a, a really good framework to to tear things apart that need to be torn down because there's no better way to 
you know, uh, like there, there's no better way to kind of own somebody in an argument than to use their own words against them. Like, so there, that's good. There's a time and mm-hmm. place for that. But I think where he falls short is that there's no truth you can access with this philosophy. And that's what led him to be a nihilist. Me, like, feeling like I am a a centered person and, like, I do uh, know my beliefs. I know who I am, so forth. I do feel like I can, like, you know, dispassionately pick deconstruction up as a tool and evaluate it and see the good in it. But I I do understand where, like, yeah, it's not really what you want to live out of because because it doesn't lead to anything. Does that make any sense? Yeah. No, no, no. Yeah, I, I think it does. Um, I think, like, it puts, if I'm understanding this correctly, deconstruction, um, is a great tool to see what's really at the center of like a belief system or whatever you're evaluating belief system, book, whatever. But it is a tool for the person who is deconstructing something. It it's it it in of itself is not a value system because at the end of deconstructing, all you have is it should be a deeper if i'm understanding this correctly deconstruction should lead to a deeper understanding of how you relate to something and your values of something does that does that sound correct i think that like your t- yeah i i think that would be a fair like i don't i don't know if i could say that that is what what derrida intended but if you're saying like if you're asking my opinion i do think that is like a fair use of it yeah, because at the, at the end of it, you should either know I don't agree with A, B, and C like I thought I did, or I agree with A and C but not B, or, hey, I even more fully agree with A, B, and C. I think, yes, that I think that you can – I think that that would be a correct way to use the tool if you look at it as a tool. I think what what I see – is that the reason why like culturally we are so like nihilistic and cynical and so many things is that we've learned to we've learned to use this tool but we don't know it's a tool does that make sense like we think it's like a philosophy yeah when i see so many this applies to deconstruction and so many different uh analyses that we we do culturally i I see so many arguments on twitter or on the news or this and that and i'm like i think from my place as being like an english student i'm like you guys are are performing literary criticism and you don't know that that's what you're doing like you're you're reading you're picking a lens to see something through and so when you do that you're going to see those things but you don't realize that you're using a lens. And so the deconstruction lens is an example. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that anybody like believe everything they're told and go along with like whatever the big powerful people in charge of us say and never be skeptical, never be whatever. But the other extreme, like 
I'm also... I tried to not... I was trying to mute myself so you would keep going without um, hearing all that in the background. But I'll just... I'm going to make sure... I heard... Yeah, ladies and gentlemen, we just had a little interruption. I was like talking and I heard something going on. And so for a minute, I just kept going. (laughs) But then I, I wasn't sure if I should stop or not. So anyway... I don't remember where where I left off, but the idea is that that deconstruction, if anything, should be should be used as a tool. That's what I would say is like it should be a tool and you shouldn't make it the lens through which you see everything, because if you do, then it's just like whatever you lay your eyes on, you're going to pull apart. Whatever you lay your eyes on, you're going to find the problem in it. And that is not any more correct than always seeing, always seeing just the good and everything and not never being skeptical, never, never looking further. That's one extreme. But the other extreme is what deconstruction naturally becomes, which is I only see the bad in anything ever. Well, that's the episode. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Thanks again for listening. You can find this and all of our episodes at our Substack, which is coming along nicely. And if you're looking for something to read, maybe a nice little five, 10 minute read, some poetry, maybe even some music, you can find all of Tim's stuff at nicely.substack.com. He writes weekly. It's great. I know I'm biased, but you guys really love it. And we hope you guys will join us on the next episode.